Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. I'm so excited about this morning um, as to where we're headed. And I will go ahead and, and I guess, um, cast my disclaimer to you that um, as we walk through this next study for the next 10 weeks, um, you're going to hear some hard truths. Today's going to be one of those days. Parts of today's message are, I'm just going to be real, real honest, are not a very, very popular message um, because it may be offensive to some. But the beauty of the gospel is it is offensive in its simplicity. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to stay true to what God's word says. Um, one thing that I do want to encourage you with, over the next 10 weeks, we are going to walk through the book of Nehemiah. We're going back Old Testament. And so what I would encourage you to do is to read along with us. And the safest way to do that is just read a chapter a week. If you will read a chapter a week, then you will know exactly where we're going to be coming from um, the following week. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter one this morning, but I want to start out by reading some characteristics to you um, concerning a group of people. And I don't want you to shout anything out. I don't want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call anybody to give me the answer, but I want to, in your mind, as I read this characteristics of this, this, this group of people. I want you in your mind to see if you can guess who it is. And so I'm gonna start out by reading these characteristics. These characteristics start out by saying this, they were esteemed with, or they had great status. They had a great status. They had now entered into a, a painful season. Everything familiar that they were familiar with has recently changed. And as a result of all this, their children are now questioning their faith. They are falling under the heavy-handed government who seems to be trying to control life. Many of them are wishing it could go back to the way it used to be. And when they sit back and think about it, they seem to be a, a, minor, a minority surrounded by a godless majority. And because of the life that they are now living in, is causing them to doubt God. It's causing them to question God. And so as you are processing that in your mind, you may have your own opinion of who you think that this group of people is. Who, who have we just talked about? Who have we just described? And maybe some of you in your mind are going, well, <laughs> that's the old U.S. of A. But I have news for you. As that may be your first response, the the people that we just described to you is the children of God, the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem in the time period in which the book of Nehemiah was written. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very familiar. 
And so what I wanna do this morning is I just sort of wanna catch you up to this, this book of Nehemiah. And you're gonna, again, you're gonna hear a lot of hard truths over the next 10 weeks. So I just wanna go ahead and throw that out there. But Nehemiah, the, the time of this book, Nehemiah takes place after the children of Israel had been released under the 70-year bondage of Babylon. They had already been released. Um, Jerusalem has since been destroyed and in the city of Jerusalem, the city was set apart to be the light of the world, to be the light in the middle of darkness. But instead of being the light in darkness, the city now lays in shambles. However, we've seen glimpses of hope. We've seen glimpses of, of victory because under, under the rule of Ezra the priest or under the leadership of Ezra the priest, we know that the, the temple of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. It had been resurrected, so to speak, but... Even in that victory, we're, we'll read in the scripture today that the walls and the gates had still been destroyed and were still laying um, in rubble. And so here you have a, a man by the name of Nehemiah. While all this is taking place, Nehemiah is just that guy who is working his job. He's just doing what he's responsible for. And you're gonna hear more about this next week. But what we know about Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer to the king. And like I said, I'm not gonna unpack all that. That'll be for chapter two starting next week. But his simple responsibility was to take care of the king. And so what that meant and what, that, what, what we can know about Nehemiah just by his simple job is the fact that he was responsible, he was trusted, and he was a hardworking man. And so the reason we, we, we wanna pay attention to that is because you're gonna see who all God wants to use to build the kingdom. And what I mean by that is what we just said a moment ago, Ezra the priest, under his leadership, rebuilt the temple. And so what you're gonna see in the book of Nehemiah is that under the leadership and the vision of Nehemiah, basically your blue collar worker, you're gonna see the wall and the gates begin to be rebuilt. And so the reason that that is important is we see that that God wants to use all people from all walks of life to build his kingdom. It's not just the preacher's job. It's just not the priest's job. It's not just the small group leader's job. It's all of our job. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, every one of us have a responsibility in building the kingdom of God. And so what we can see already with Ezra, with Nehemiah, is that God has a responsibility for all followers that we all have a role in building God's kingdom. And so here Nehemiah is, he's doing his everyday job, he's doing what he, what he knows is his responsibility, and out of nowhere it seems that his brother shows up. Hananiah shows up out of the middle of nowhere. And that's what we're gonna pick up in today's reading. So I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter one, and look, we're just gonna walk through this verse by verse by verse, okay? So I'm gonna start reading in verse two today. It says that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some, some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity, and I asked them about Jerusalem. Verse three, they said to me, 
The remnant, and if you remember, we talked about that a while back. That's a small group. That's the minority of the Jews. It's a very small group that escaped, that, that left the captivity in Babylon. The remnant there in the province who have survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. I like to make things simple. And so what we can take from this is I think this began as just a casual conversation. It's just like you passing somebody in the hallway. Hey, how are you doing? And I think that's kind of where this conversation started out, but you're gonna see very quickly that it turns a, a quick 90 degree turn and, and as, as Nehemiah and Hananiah's conversation continue. But it's as if he shows up and out of nowhere, Nehemiah just by knee jerk reaction says, hey, how's everyone doing? How's everyone doing? But then what his brother proceeds to tell him is he tells him the hard truth. And it's basically like he says, hey, you wanna know? Things aren't good. Things are not good. And so from this point on, over the next couple of verses, Nehemiah basically hears everything that, that he probably didn't wanna hear. A lot of scholars believe that this response would have taken Nehemiah off guard. And so many scholars believe that maybe in his mind that, that he knew that under Ezra's leadership that the temple had been rebuilt. And some scholars believe that just he may have just assumed that, well, if the temple's been rebuilt, then the walls have been rebuilt, the gate's been rebuilt, so Jerusalem is probably fine and dandy. Everything's probably going smoothly. Because y'all know, we sort of live in that mentality a lot of times in our minds, in our families, and in our world that if it's out of sight, if it's out of mind, right? That whole no news is good news. How many of us have lived by that? If I haven't heard anything, then must, everything must be going smoothly. So a lot of scholars believe that that was where Nehemiah was, that really no news is good news. I haven't heard anything, so that means that things may be going okay. But we obviously see that as a result of his response, when he asked the question, how are you? That in this case, that no news doesn't always mean good news. And so I wanna pause right here because I hope you know my heart that I always try to pull things from the word of God through the direction of the Holy Spirit that we can take and that we can apply to our own lives. And so I wanna pause right here very, very abruptly and ask you the question, what if the person sitting beside you to your right or your left asked you this morning, hey, how are you? How are you? How would you answer the question? How would you answer the question, how are you? Would it be that generic answer, oh, things are good? I'm fine. You liar. But what I want you to understand is that what you're gonna see in the heart of Nehemiah is that he genuinely cared when he asked the question, how are you? And this is the heart of the church. This is the heart of us being family. I hope that we have cultivated a culture here that when somebody asks you, how are you? That you realize and understand that we genuinely care. 
We want you to share, how are you? The reason that we want you integrated and tangled up in small groups is because we believe that the body of Christ is surrounding each other with one another so that when we ask, how are you? We can be honest. That we can unpack how we really are. Because that's exactly what's happened in this conversation. Maybe it started out generically, how are you? But the brother looks at Nehemiah and he says, man, things aren't good. Things aren't good. And maybe this morning, if that person to your right or your left asks you, how are you? Your response may honestly describe the condition of Jerusalem. Man, things are in shambles. I'm in a mess right now. It seems that things are hopeless right now. It seems like there is no way out. But what I wanna encourage you with this morning is I want you to understand that God places people in your life. God places people in my life who genuinely care, who wanna know how are you. So that's really a side note. So let's keep reading because I want us to see how much Nehemiah really cares. Look at verse four. When he hears the response of his brother, verse four, he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So ultimately what Nehemiah has heard is is that Jerusalem is still living in rebellion. That they're still living in sin. And so as a result of that, we understand that Nehemiah really could have responded in a lot of different directions. He could have responded being angry with them. He could have responded being frustrated with them. Maybe he was even to the point that he could have gone, you know what, I just give up on that bunch. I'm just throwing in the towel on that bunch. They are hopeless. There is no hope. They've messed up one too many times. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, but with that being said, I would venture to say if if Nehemiah lived in in our current context and culture, at the moment he heard this news, everything in him would have wanted to go straight to social media and begin to say, can you believe what Jerusalem is doing? Can you believe the sin that they're still living in? Because he would have thought for some reason that everybody wanted to hear what he had to think about it. Because we realize that this is the culture that we live in. That there's nothing that makes the human heart happier when they get to post about somebody else's failures and somebody else's shortcomings. But how different would our world look if we responded like Nehemiah? If instead of looking at people and being judgmental, instead of throwing stones, what if we stopped for just a minute of posting about it and instead we prayed about it? What if we just kept our mouth shut? Because can I tell you that when we go on social media and we post things, people really don't care what you got to say. They really don't. They just give you them sympathy likes. Oh, they're just in their board. I'm just going to let them know that I'm reading them. But how much different would our world look that when we begin to hear about failures, when we begin to hear about sin, instead of posting about it, we prayed about it. 
I guarantee you things would change. I guarantee you things would look a lot different than they do now. But when is the last time that we have heard the acknowledgement of someone's sin and someone's failures and we were just like Nehemiah and we were truly broken over somebody else's failures? When were we truly broken over sin? When were we truly broken over other people's shortcomings? Because that's exactly what Nehemiah did. Instead of getting angry about it, instead of getting frustrated with their condition, he was broken about it. He was broken over their condition. Which gets us to the whole part of chapter one, verses five through 11. You understand that verses five through 11, all it is is a prayer. It is just Nehemiah crying out to God on behalf of Jerusalem and its condition and the state that they're in. But what I want us to do is we're just gonna walk through this prayer because I believe that there is a lot we can learn from prayer. There's a lot we can learn when we see prayers modeled in scripture. So I want us to look verse by verse. We're gonna look at this prayer. Look at verse five. Look how he starts out with his prayer. He said, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. What's interesting is this modeled prayer sounds a lot like the start of when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. If you remember, they asked Jesus, how do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You realize that all that Jesus was teaching the disciples to do is that when you're in a conversation with God, the first and foremost thing that we do is acknowledge who we're talking to. Acknowledge who we're having a conversation with. And that's exactly what we see. He cries out, he says, the God of heaven, you are great and you are awesome. God, you are a God who keeps your promises. God, you are full of loving kindness. But here's what I want, to, I want you to all realize is that when we pray this way, we're not having to jog God's memory of helping him understand who he is. Okay, we're not reminding God of who he is. But what we're doing is we're taking our rightful place in this prayer. We're acknowledging of God who he is to us, but we're also acknowledging who we're not. We're acknowledging who we are not. And so that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's getting his heart ready to petition to God on behalf of the city of Jerusalem. Because what he's about to ask God for is something only God can do. He's about to ask God for the miraculous. He's about to ask God for something that he knows that he can't accomplish in his flesh. You know, you hear me say this often. I've said this from day one since God called us here almost six years ago, that I wanna be a part of something that no man can get credit for. I wanna ask God to do something that only God can get credit for. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, God, I want you to do something so miraculous that there is no man or woman on the face of the planet that can get credit for what's gonna happen except you. God, I want you to do it. And so with him acknowledging who God is and who he's not, he's getting ready to ask God to do what only 
God can do. But I find it very interesting that when he heard of Jerusalem's condition, his first response was to run to God. Well, if you remember last week, but that's exactly what Hannah did. That's exactly what Hannah did when there was a need, when there was a tough circumstance, she ran to the feet of God. And that's exactly what we see again in this passage of Nehemiah here. First thing he did, because look, as humans, y'all understand that a lot of us, we have a savior complex. That when we hear of tough circumstances, when we hear of, of tough situations, our human response is, oh, we gotta fix it. We gotta fix it. When we hear of, of somebody else's sin, when we hear of, of chaos in someone else's life, our hero mentality takes over. That savior complex steps in and we think in that moment, hey, I've gotta fix it. There's no doubt in my mind that there's somebody in this room today that maybe you've received news this week, maybe you've heard from a family this week, and your first knee-jerk reaction is, hey, you feel like you've gotta fix somebody or fix something. But what I want to encourage you with this morning, you don't have the power to fix anybody. So instead of trying to be the fixer, just run to God and say, God, I need you to do what I can't do. I need you to do, and can I tell you, once we discover that and realize that, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. There's a lot of freedom when we realize that we're not the fixer, that we serve the ultimate fixer. God's heart, all he wants us to do is when we discover problems and we see things that are chaotic in life, he doesn't want us to try to fix them. He wants us to first run to him. Now, that's not to say that he then won't give us instruction of what our responsibility is in that. But the first thing God wants you to do is he wants you to turn to him. And that's exactly what Nehemiah has done. He's heard the current condition of Jerusalem and instead of immediately going, okay, well, you know what? I've got to get on the next bus out of town. I've got to get to Jerusalem and I've got to fix that mess. No, that's not what he did. He ran to God. And he said, God, I need you to do what I can't do. God, I need you to do what I can't do. And so I want us to keep leading in verse six. We're just going to walk through this prayer. He's just acknowledged who God is. Then he's gonna say here, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. I want us to stop right there because it's very important to pay attention. I love the simplicity of Nehemiah's prayer. He's acknowledged God. But now all he says is, God, just please listen. God, just please listen. Turn your ear towards me. But not only did he ask God to listen, but I don't know if you recognize it, but what he indirectly did is he committed to continue to pray. And what you're gonna realize is that what Nehemiah was doing is he was committing to pray until God moved. He was committing to pray for the children of Israel until God moved. 
When's the last time you've committed to pray until God moved? Again, we talked about it in Hannah's prayer. Remember, it was something that she regularly did. Prayer is not a one and done. And you say, well, how, 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 how long do we know that Nehemiah prayed? What you're gonna see is at the end of chapter one, remember, all of chapter one is a prayer. It closes out by the ending of his prayer. The very first part of chapter two, you're immediately gonna see God jump into action. And so if we look at that and we see, well, you know what? He was praying in chapter one and already when we flip the page to chapter two, God was already moving. But what we have to make sure we understand is that you know how long the time period was from the end of chapter one to the beginning of chapter two? It was four months. It was four months before God ever moved. And so what we have to understand is that Nehemiah, not only did he say, God, turn your ear to me, but God, I'm gonna commit to pray until you move. And what we realize that according to these dates, according to the scripture, that he was devoted to pray for four months before God ever began to move. When is the last time you have faithfully and fervently prayed for four months until God moved? I don't want to answer that because it's very convicting to me. But have we ever prayed with such consistent that we, we said, God, you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to keep praying until you move. If that takes one day, if that takes one month, if that takes four days, or in this case, if that takes four months, maybe in some cases it may take four years, but are you going to stay committed to praying until God moves. And so maybe that's, we can honestly give a response right now in this moment and say, you know what, today I'm gonna commit to pray. I know a family that's falling apart. I know a child that's gonna stray. I know this or I know that. But God, today I'm gonna commit to pray about this situation. I'm not gonna post about it. I'm gonna pray about it until you move. So maybe that's your commitment today. Maybe you know someone in the room that needs you to be interceding on their behalf. Encourage them, text them, say today, hey, you know what? The Spirit of God convicted me today that I'm gonna pray for you until God moves in your life. I'm gonna pray for you until God moves. But let's keep reading the remaining part of verse six. We see that his prayer shifts gears a little bit. He begins, it says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against you. Now I read that, I'm like, yeah, I can, I can pray about somebody else's sin all day long. That was pretty easy. He's praying on forgiveness of the sins of everybody else, but it doesn't stop there. He goes on next and he says there, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Verse seven we have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances in which you have commanded of your servant Moses. So what Nehemiah does is he begins a prayer of repentance. He's praying on behalf of the nation. He's praying on behalf of his family and now he's praying on behalf of himself. He's asking for God's forgiveness 
And yes, it's easy to acknowledge the sin of others. It's easy to look at the condition of our country and pray for everybody else. But don't you dare forget to repent of your own sins. Don't you dare forget that when you got one point fingered that way, you got three pointing right back at you. Never forget to repent of your own sins. He says there that we've broken the law of Moses. Now the law of Moses is referencing the 10 commandments. And I know there's some, there's some teachings out there that will tell you, hey, you know what? You don't have to pay attention to the 10 commandments anymore. We live under grace. We ain't gotta worry about the law anymore. We live under the grace of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which yes, 100%, that is accurate. However, what we have got to make sure that we understand is what Jesus said about this law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. And so as a follower of Christ, at the end of the day, the greatest guardrails that we can ever walk in and being obedient to our calling and what God has saved us from is let's pay attention to the Ten Commandments. Let's pay attention to the law that he gave Moses who knows how long ago. And I remember one time in student ministry, I preached a message that I was trying to teach our students. We've got to get back to where we love the law that we've got to love these statutes that God gave Moses. And you say, well, why do we have to love the law? Can I tell you that we have to understand that if we break one law, which we know that in our human flesh, we have no power, no ability to fulfill the law. There's no way that we can follow all the rules. That's the whole purpose that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we couldn't do. So if you break one of the laws, you've broken them all. And as a result of that, there must be a price that has to be paid. And that price is death. And we know that that death was Jesus's death on a cross. So you say, well, where are you going that? The reason that we love the law is the law, the ability for us not to keep it is the very reason that we understand our need for a savior. That when we break the law, we realize, hey, I can't do this in my flesh, so I can't depend on me, but I've got to be dependent upon the one who did it. And so instead of looking at the law and thinking, oh, we ain't got to pay that no attention, we got to be thankful for the law because the law is the very thing that exposed our need for a savior. This is why we love the law. So yes, we live under grace. But the very breaking of the law is the very thing that introduced us to that grace. It's because we know that Jesus did for us what we didn't have the ability to do ourselves. So Jesus paid that price. He paid the price because he fulfilled what we could not accomplish. And we know that when we place our faith in his finished work, then that's where our resurrection life is from. Not in your ability, but in his. But let's keep reading in verse eight. In verse eight, it says, but if you return to me, let's go back, I'm gonna read verse eight. Sorry, that was verse nine. Verse eight, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now here's where we have to pay attention because I'm gonna tell you right now, what you're gonna hear for the next probably 10 minutes is not popular. What you're gonna hear for the next few minutes is, is not a lot of fun. But what this tells us in this part of the prayer is that it is reminding us that, that God is a God who keeps his word. Verses eight and nine actually are referring back to verse five that we read earlier where it talks about that it's a God who preserves who preserves his covenant. What that literally means is that God is gonna stick behind what he says. God's gonna, he's gonna follow through with his word. He's going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. He's gonna fulfill this covenant that he's talking about. And so you may ask the question, well, what covenant is that? What covenant has he made with the children of Israel? There's several places that we could look in the Old Testament um, to sort of land on what he's talking about here. But, but I want us to go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26. And I want you to hear this covenant that God makes with the children of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 13, we're just going to sort of sum that up. Ultimately, what God is telling the children of Israel here is he's saying, hey, look, if you'll be devoted to me, I'll be devoted to you. If you'll be devoted to me, then I will be devoted to you. And we see the results of that in verses 11 through 13. This is one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible, but it says, moreover, I will make my dwelling place among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and I made you, I made your wall erect. So God is reminding them, if you will be devoted to me, I will be devoted to you. So he's telling them, he's pleading with them, just follow me, just submit to me. But then in verse 14, everything changes. Verse 14, everything changes. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, and then to save you the pain, he then begins to list out what are the results of that disobedience. And in the next part of this scripture, I'll just sort of sum it up. He says, look, if you're not going to be obedient, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send sudden terror. The enemy will eat all of your seed. I'm going to set my face before you. You'll be overcome by fear. Listen to the harshness of this one. I'll punish you. I'll break down your pride. You won't yield any fruit. There will be an increase of plague. I'm gonna let the beast loose. I'm gonna destroy all of your cattle. And I'm gonna reduce the numbers of your roads until they're desolate. We hear this warning in Leviticus and now we fast forward to see the current condition of Jerusalem. And we see that God is fulfilling what God said in the covenant. As a result of their disobedience, look at the chaos that has taken place in Jerusalem. 
And I don't know about you, but when I read this, when I hear of what God has warned them of and now what's playing out in later scripture, I'm sitting there, there's, there's two thoughts that probably come to your mind. And the first thought may be this, man, the devil's at really at work in Jerusalem. Man, the devil's really at work in the children of Israel's life. You may, maybe we even look at this and we even hear the warning that God has given to the children of Israel. And maybe that's even how we describe, we look at our country and we say, man, the devil's really at work in our country. Maybe you look in our schools and you say, man, the devil's really at work in our schools. Maybe in some cases we look at the church and we say, God, the devil's really at work in the church. Or maybe when you look at your home, you're thinking, man, the devil's really at work in my home. Or maybe you examine your own life and you say, God, the enemy's at work in my life. And I would agree with you. That, that, that statement's pretty easy to say. That yeah, there's elements of truth to that fact that yes, the enemy's at work. The enemy's doing a lot of negative things in all of our lives. And it would be very easy to cast blame. Now listen to me, I'm not advocating for the devil. I want you to hear my heart in this. But can I just tell you that we give the devil a lot, way too much credit. The enemy doesn't need any more advocates, okay? When Nehemiah heard of the condition of Jerusalem, Never did you hear Nehemiah say, man, the devil's really at work in Jerusalem. Can you believe that? Can you believe what the enemy's up to? What we have to understand, listen to me, here's the hard truth that you're not gonna hear a lot of places. What we've gotta realize is that the chaos, maybe in our world, the chaos in our homes, the chaos in our school, it's not a work of the devil, but it's a reflection of the result of disobedient Christians. It's not always the devil's fault. A lot of times it's the child of God's fault who's rebelling against what God has commanded and instruction, instructioned us to do. And yes, we leave the door open for the enemy to go to work. But can I tell you that a lot of the chaos we see in our world, the lot of the chaos that we hear about in the home has nothing to do with the devil, but it has everything to do with the disobedient church that we're not standing on the truth of God's word, that we're not holding true to the commandment of what God's word tells us to do. We've got to quit casting blame on everyone else and we've got to take ownership. We've got to take ownership to what is our responsibility. And here's the message to the Christians in the room, the followers of Christ, listen to me. We can't live like the world and get angry when God doesn't bless it. We can't live in sin and then get mad when chaos happens. It's not the devil's fault. It's not God's fault. Newsflash, it's yours. We've got to stop casting blame on the consequences of our sin. We can't live, act, 
talk and walk like the world and expect God to bless it. God will not bless sin. He's not gonna do it. So maybe that's just the first thought. You say, well, Brian, what's the second thought maybe that came through my mind? You know, when we hear of God's warning to the children of Israel and we see the results of what's taking place in Jerusalem, maybe that second thought is, man, that doesn't sound like a loving God. That doesn't sound like a loving God. And I would agree with you on the surface that what we've read thus far doesn't seem like a loving God. But if you keep reading in Leviticus chapter 26, what you're gonna hear is the heart of a loving father. Because what you have to realize is that the heart of a loving father, listen to me, the heart of a loving father is to turn rebellious people back to him. That's the heart of God, is to turn rebellious people back to him. And we find that tucked away just in one little verse. And I'm so careful that we don't just fly right over it. Remember, he's just told them, here's the results if you're disobeying me. Here's what's gonna happen if you don't abide by my commandments. And he unleashes all of the disasters that's gonna happen. But listen to verse 23 of Leviticus chapter 26. And if by these things you are not turned to me. We could really stop right there. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but you act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. You see, that in a nutshell is the heart of God. That there's a lot of times in our life that we're in the middle of storms as a result of our sin and God and his sovereign will is allowing those things to take place, not to punish you, not to spank you on the wrist, but to simply turn you back to the one who loves you. He wants you to turn and run back to him when chaos in life happens as a result of our sin. And what we have to realize is that is his heart. He allows these things to take place to turn rebellious people back to him. So when we look at what Jerusalem is experiencing, we see the consequences that they're facing as a result of their sin. All that God's doing is using it to get their attention. I just want you to turn back to me. I just want you to turn back to me. So God was using their chaos to get their attention. But if you remember in verse five of Nehemiah chapter one, we said there that he preserves his covenant. And look, if we stop this message right here, that's pretty discouraging. And pretty like, oh God, so if I don't walk this straight line, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to face tough, well, yeah, but here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. He preserves his covenant, not just part of it, but he preserves all of it. Look at Nehemiah chapter one, verse nine. But, but, 
And I don't know about you, but this is all of our story. If you've been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus, but if you return to me, if you return to me, skip down just a little bit, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. You know, you may be living in absolute chaos right now in your life. And maybe it's a direct reflection of your sin. Maybe it's a direct reflection of bad mistakes you've made. But what I want you to hear is the heart of God this morning. If you turn back to him, according to his word, according to the fact that he preserves his promise, his covenant, he will welcome you with open arms. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing now. If you will turn back to God the Father, place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you will be saved, that he will receive you back to himself you see, that's what he's doing in Jerusalem. He's opening their eyes just with the heart so that they'll turn back to him. Have you thought that this may be exactly what God's doing in our country? God may be wreaking havoc and allowing all of this chaos to wake our eyes up, to turn our country back to him to turn the church back to him. Because I cannot be real honest, there's some Christians that need to turn back. There's some Christians that need to turn back instead of chasing after the things of the world, instead of conforming to the things of the world. Turn back to the Father and see that he's waiting with his arms wide open because God's heart is to rescue rebellious people. That's the story of the prodigal son that every person in the room has probably heard of. The father let his son go. You want it your way? You can have it your way. Go on. And we know that according to that story, the Bible said that he, he participated in everything under the sun that was sinful. And he woke up and he found himself eating like a pig. And because of that disaster, because of that slop, because of his circumstances, it opened his eyes to a father that loved him. And so the Bible says that he got up and he went back home. But the favorite part of that story, and you've heard me say it a thousand times, it said that the father saw his son afar off. That's the heart of God. He was standing there waiting, looking for the return of his son. And I could only get that hallmark moment of when the two ran together. I don't think the father said, now stop, son. I gotta correct everything. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you've done. Here's the mistakes you've made. I hope you're happy. He didn't say a word. He welcomed his son home and they threw a party. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I believe that this is the heart of God for Jerusalem. He just wants the children of God to turn back to him. And he's allowing whatever to take place 
to open their eyes, to turn them back. We could probably go around for hours and give testimony this morning of terrible circumstances that turned you back to God, that turned me back to God. I had a conversation outside this morning with one of our members who's walking through this terrible times as a result of a family member's sin. But to hear that prayer, God, use this to turn my child back to you. And I think about Miss Gail, God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Because you see, Nehemiah knew how much God loved his children. If you read verse 10, listen to him. He declared them yours. These are your people. You've redeemed them. And God, I know that if you redeemed them once, you'll redeem them again. Because God, you love them that much. But then we're gonna read this last verse, verse 11. As he closes out his prayer, he says, oh Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. Now I'm not gonna unpack that because that's what you're gonna get in chapter two. But if we read that prayer on the surface, for me, I read it and I think, man, that almost seems self-absorbed. That he's asking, God, let your servant be successful. But what you're gonna hear and what you're gonna discover even next week is this whole heart behind God allowed me to be successful. All he was simply doing was making himself available and saying, God, use me. God, if you can use me in the restoration of Jerusalem, God, I'm yours. God, if you can use me in the rebuilding of your kingdom, God, I am yours. Because remember, the walls are still destroyed. The gate is still destroyed. But the heart of Nehemiah, he's saying, God, I wanna be a part of what you're doing. And so God, I'm making myself available, but, but God, you know for me to be available, I'm gonna need some favor with the king. So God, I need your help. But God, I'm available to do whatever it is that you've called me to do. You know, when we look at the condition of the world around us, when maybe you look at the condition of your home, maybe the condition of your workplace, You see problems. You see things that need fixed. The first thing I would encourage you to do this morning is number one, run to the Father. Beg God to do what you can't do. But most importantly, make yourself available. And say, God, use me. God, use me to build your kingdom.
And what you're gonna hear is Nehemiah left the comfort of everything he knew in order to be used by God to build the kingdom. And so for the Christian this morning, maybe that's your prayer today. Is God, how can I be used to build the kingdom? God, how can you use me in my workplace? God, I don't wanna fix it, but God, I wanna be available for you to use me. And I know the language that we use here often is, we just say, yeah, I'm putting my yes on the table. So God, here it is. Put your yes on the table before you even know what it is that God asked you to do. That's a bold prayer. But maybe today, for some of us, we need to make ourselves available, but also, some of you this morning, you're living in chaos. Can I encourage you this morning? Stop blaming the devil. Stop blaming the devil and ask God to examine your heart and to see if the consequences that you're experiencing are a direct reflection of your disobedience. And if it is, have the heart of Nehemiah and just repent and say, God, I'm sorry. And realize that God's allowing you to walk through this because he wants you to turn back to him. That's how much he loves you. And I can promise you that when you come back, he's not gonna say, hold up. He's gonna say, come on home. Come on home. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps, and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org. And don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you. We're praying for you. And we'll see you next time.